So how is everybody on this Tuesday? Little chilly, are we? It's actually warmer now in here than it was when I got here at 11.30. So the heat's on. I took my jacket off, but if you need to keep it on, keep it on. I remember one time, this was years ago, when my classes were meeting up in Festival Hall and we, we had no control over the room and it was so cold, it was the air conditioning. It was so cold. Outside the room there were these tables set up with mission t-shirts for the people who are going on mission. People went out and got piles of t-shirts <laughs> to lay in big piles on themselves in order to try to keep warm in there. That was crazy. So it's not too bad in here today. You know, it is winter time, right? No, wait, no, it's not. It's still fall. Are you kidding me? So it's good to see everybody here today as we, as we resume our journey through 1 Corinthians. And um, so let's see. I've been asked a lot about uh, my plans for upcoming classes. So we're here today, we will meet next Tuesday, the Tuesday before Thanksgiving. We will meet in December. The last meeting we have in December will be December 20th. Can I say something? Okay, yeah. so mark it down because the corner gals, as we call them, are gonna bring Christmas, okay? Yeah, so mark it down, December 20th. They're gonna ha we're going to help them with that, okay, by bringing goodies like we have in the past, but they're going to lead that effort. How's that? That's good. We're gonna, that's just like we did it. We haven't done it for a couple of years, understandably. So then on the Tuesday between Christmas and New Year's, we will not meet, okay, taking that week off, and then we'll be back on the first Tuesday after New Year's, and we will be rolling, and I... We may be into the book of Samuel by then. We'll just have to see how things work out. I, I don't really know since we're not on a schedule in here, which I personally like. I like not being on a schedule, feeling like I have to meet certain dates, be at certain places, because I want to give us time to, to talk. So, um, Can you repeat that date again? Which date? December 20th is a, is a Tuesday, I think. We hope <laughs> it's whatever that last Tuesday is before Christmas. I'm pretty sure it's December 20th, okay? So, um, I don't really have anything else. We're going to continue making our way through this, this very important chapter in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, chapter 15. And I think we should be good online. Everything looks good to me. Everything's checking out. So, would you join me in a moment of prayer? Gracious Lord, we are grateful to be back here again. It may be chilly outside, but it's warm in here. And we appreciate the gift of your Holy Spirit who moves among us. And we pray that your Spirit would open up this chapter for us and help us to realize its importance and, and to hear Paul well um, as he wrote these words 2,000 years ago. We have, to, we have to really hear them well today and make sense of them today in, in our time. For it is, uh, it is the linchpin um, in the Christian story. So, all of this we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. 
Okay, so here's where we are in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul has already basically presented his evidence, which in the ancient world, the grade A, top drawer, top golden evidence is eyewitness testimony. So he does that right off the top. Jesus appeared to so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so to 500 other brothers and sisters, most of whom are still alive. And as I said then, it's almost in a creedal form. If you see it, it's kind of that way in English, if it were typeset that way, um, that you can see it, um, I'm told, in the Greek as well. And it's, it's a creedal formulation that goes back very early, maybe as early as a year after Jesus' resurrection. It's, all, it's the testimony about the truth of the claim that Jesus was resurrected bodily. So, and then Paul went on to talk about the implications of that not being so. Well, what if, that's, what if it didn't happen? And Paul says, well, we're to be pitied more than anybody because we believed a lie. But it did happen. It did happen. And it changes everything. And so the next obvious question that I get all the time, and Paul obviously got from the Corinthians, is, well, what sort of body is this going to be? What are you really telling me? You know, I usually joke around a little bit about it. You know, will I have all my hair back? Will I be taller, thinner, six-pack, I don't know, a nice everlasting tan, all those kind of silly things, right? Um, so, um, with the Corinthians, Paul has to spend time with this question because it's going to be very hard for them to, to understand the resurrection in the sense of an actual body and not just some sort of spirit vapor or spiritual thing, something like that. And so he, Paul's going to use some metaphors and stuff to do it. We will have to be... <laughs> maybe botanists or something at a certain point in this. So let's just plunge in. Okay, but before I do, I was digging through, I was cleaning up my bag, this brown bag over here that is my moving office. Somebody gave me this pamphlet on Jesus, a prophet of God, how Muslims love Jesus, yet they deny all the essential things that we believe about Jesus. But anyway, and so I was looking over, they talk about Jesus is God and how he isn't God and he's a prophet, but they do believe in the virgin birth, okay? And then I was looking for, and they talk about the miracles and the message, and then Jesus and Islam, and I'm looking and looking and looking for the resurrection. Because that's really, you know, we understand that the resurrection is the, is the proof that makes Good Friday mean something demonstrate that it does mean something. Well, it's not here. I shook it. <laughs> Nothing fell out about the resurrection. They, they deny, of course, the resurrection of Jesus um, for exactly the reason you would think they would. I, I believe that it is, if it happened, as we tell the world that it does, because it's true that it does, then it changes everything. It makes all the claims of Jesus be read differently. So, Scott, don't the Muslims believe that Muhammad ascended into heaven? Yeah, but not, well, no, he, he wasn't resurrected. He just wasn't resurrected. Kind of up, just, kind of like, it's kind of like Elijah. Yeah, that's right. I think so, yes. What? Podcast, did you turn it on? 
Did you turn on the podcast? I sure did. Podcast, yes. I think it's on. Let me check it. Thank you very much, Doug. I appreciate that because I have messed this up before. Pause one second. Podcasts have been on for eight minutes and ten seconds. Yes. <laughs> yeah, Don. Yes. Why did it? Why was it so difficult, and it takes so long for Christianity? You would think of 500 plus the apostles and and Paul. I mean, we get over 500 people. I mean, that's a, a large group. That's a large group, and, and, I, and at, 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 I mean, at the end of the first century, we had what 10,000 Christians? Maybe something like that. Yeah. But it's 500 people in an, in, in an empire of 60 million, and it's 500 Jews. Right, all living there in this dusty, this dusty, no account place called Judea, as far as the Romans were concerned. And so I don't have any difficulty understanding why the Gentiles would say, Well, I don't care what you say about 500 Jews thinking about this. What sort of God gets himself crucified? How silly! a God to get himself crucified. And so for most of the Gentiles, it's an easy thing to blow off. For the Jews, no matter what, some group of Jesus people back in Jerusalem said, for most Jews, it was simply blasphemous to claim about Jesus what the Christians were claiming, because not only were they claiming that he was resurrected, not only were they claiming that he was the Messiah, which is, Messiahs don't get themselves crucified either. They were speaking of Jesus only in ways that the Jews had ever spoken of God. And that's why even at Jesus' trial before Caiaphas, Caiaphas stands up and rips his robe. He understands what Jesus is saying when Jesus marries up Daniel and Psalm 110. Stands up, rips his robe. He gets it. He gets it, okay? So I, I think... Christianity spreads slowly. Um, it is completely antithetical to the whole mental framework of the ancient world. People in the ancient world believed that there were many, many gods and goddesses of all stripes. Had always been that way. And now, this claim that some were familiar with, because they would have known the Jews, that there is this God, this one God, who got himself crucified. And I, I just, I completely get. And because, you see, Christianity just grew peacefully. There was no coercion. With, Christianity grew peacefully. There was no social reason to be Christian for more than 300 years. Once Constantine becomes a Christian, then it becomes, well, you know, maybe I ought to be one too if I'm really going to make it in the empire. But until then, there's no social reason to be Christian, so it grows. Um, and by the time you come to Constantine, numbers may be six million out of 60 million, and that is a very different story than, for example, Islam, which spread at the end of a sword. These were conquering wars across North Africa, upward into Spain, across into Turkey, up into the Slavic, what we would call the Slavic states. It's all, that was all done at the point of a sword. So, Christianity 
Christianity grew. The, I always remember this one article, one little article. It was a something Atlantic Magazine did. They would always have pose a question on the back last page of the Atlantic Magazine, and one time the question was, "Well, what's the greatest upset in human history?" And Cass Sunstein, who was Obama's regulatory czar, said, "As far as I know, as far as I could tell, he's Jewish." Cass Sunstein said the emergence of Christianity because it had absolutely no reason to emerge. Now you can, ex you can try to explain it any way you want. I explain it because I think it's a true story and the Holy Spirit worked to, to, to guide the emergence of Christianity. But it all hinged on this crazy claim that the man who had been crucified by the Romans was resurrected and he was this Jewish Messiah and more than that he was the savior of the world as Luke writes. That's a long answer to your question. Okay, I can't help but I get on a roll. That's how it is. There's a lot, you know, there's a lot to all of this. It, it, how was I reading? I, I think this was a tweet actually in the past few days and, and, and he said, you know, perhaps the, the, the complexity of the Bible and the difficulties we have interpreting it are not a bug, but a feature, but a feature, so that we are forced to keep coming back and back, and we grow in our faith, we grow in understanding, and we come back, and we see different things, and we come back, and we read it differently, and we come back. Yeah, that's it. That's how it can fill lifetimes for countless Christians and Jews who study the Hebrew Bible. Okay, so, anything else I can go on about? <laughs> Let's go to 15, verse 35. Okay. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? Now, that's not about the process. Um, if you were to paraphrase it, you'd paraphrase it, in what form will the dead be raised? That's the question. Because who could answer, how will the dead be raised? I mean, how does God do what God does? How did God create the world out of nothingness? The question is, in what form? And that is a completely understandable question, one which I get asked all the time. So, how are the dead raised? In what form? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish... And the NRSV, it's just fools. It's like Psalm 14, where the psalmist writes, fools are those who can't see the truth about God. Fools, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. I'm going to talk about this in a second, but let's just read a little bit more. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body, as he has determined, and to each kind of seed, he gives its own body. Okay, so this is an agricultural world. Paul goes for an agricultural metaphor. And so I was thinking about this when I was getting ready for today. So do you remember, do you remember those packages that you could get that you would, like from Burpee, and you would tear open the package and it would have seeds in it, right? So I think if I ordered 12 random packages of seeds, 
and put them all on a plate and mixed them all up together, I doubt, well, maybe, I may be wrong. One of you may be such an amazing gardener, botanist, farmer that you would know, but I doubt that any of us could really tell which seed is what, right? How would you, how would you without the packaging, how would you tell what the seed is? You can. Okay. I know, I know, I know you can, but I'm trying to help you with Paul's metaphor. Okay. I know you, I know you can. That's why I said, but if you're good enough, I know you can. But for average people like me, okay, you could take 12 little flower seeds and put them all together and I couldn't pick out the, 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 you know, the daisies from the gladiolas. Or, well, I don't even know. I don't even know. Gladiolas are probably bulbs or something. Okay, see, there we go. <laughs> okay, so, so you, Paul's point is that little bitty seed that you look at, you, you can't really tell by looking. If, let's assume that you had never encountered that seed before. Okay, how about that? It's a seed found only in... <laughs> Mustard seed. In Africa or somewhere you okay, so you have this seed. To to know what the plant is, you're gonna plant plant the seed and then from that will emerge the plant. Right? That it's all the seed is the seed is God's potential. And so you sow the seed, S O W, you sow the seed, and then you can you can see then what kind of plant or flower or stuff will emerge from that seed. Now, that emphasizes two things, I think. One, it emphasizes the continuity between the seed and the plant, right? Because everything you need for the plant besides sun, water, and soil is in the seed, right? You, you tell me if I'm getting this wrong, okay? All right? But it's also, there's also discontinuity. Because nobody's going to make a, mis a mistake in telling the difference in appearance between a seed and the full-grown plant. So it's both, there's both continuity and discontinuity. That's what Paul's trying to do. And he's doing it in an agricultural way because that's what he chose. And I, in my opinion, it's not a bad way to do it in the agricultural world. Okay. And I don't know how much Paul knows about seeds in general, except you put them in the ground and a plant pops up. Okay. So, let's just read on a little bit. Let's, let's go back to 38. But God gives it a body, the seed, as he has determined. And to each kind of seed he gives its own body. Wheat, corn, oak trees, all that, right? Those are all the bodies he talks about. These different seeds end up creating different, growing into different plants. Though somebody like Scott couldn't necessarily tell them apart when they're all laying mixed together on a plate. Now, he says in verse 39, not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh. Animals have another, birds another, and fish another. All he means is a human is not a bird, is not a dog, is not a tuna. <laughs> right? That's all he's saying is. He's saying, look, okay, so, there's, so we have the seed and the plant, 
continuity, discontinuity, and then there's all kinds of different bodies, different flesh out there, different bodies, humans. You've got a human, and you can tell them what these apart, humans and dogs and camels and fish and so on. Simple point, not complicated. Then he says, there are also heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies, okay? Now, the heavenly bodies are the, what you look up and see at night in the stars and so forth, okay? And the, he may be, it's possible he's trying to help the Corinthians along because there were, there were beliefs in the ancient world that, you know, about people dying and sort of becoming stars. And some people took it very literally, um, though, though they should not have. So he says there are heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind. They have their own splendor, their own specialness, their own glory, their own deal. And the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. All he's doing is pointing out these differences. Okay? And kind of setting up where he's going with this. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another. Okay? Because the sun ain't the stars. Well, now we know they are, but for these people, they're not. We know that a sun and a star are the same thing, but Paul doesn't know that. Okay? And stars. And star differs from star in splendor. I know that. I can go out at night. I have one of these cool apps on my, on my iPad where I can hold the iPad up to the sky and it will see for that day, I mean, just exactly the sky for that moment at my latitude and longitude in the day. And I, and I can see what all the stars are now. Because we live in Dallas where there's a lot of light pollution, it's never great. It's rarely good. It's usually lousy. <laughs> but if I drove out to West Texas, that'd be spectacular. I remember as a boy being able to really see quite clearly the Milky Way, yeah. right? When it would be this stripe of denser stars that would go across the sky and you realized you were looking at the edge of the galaxy. You're looking through all the stars that are part of the galaxy that, you know, that the sun is part of. Wow. But he's, the sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another kind, the stars another, and star differs from star in splendor. Some are brighter than others. Simple, right? You might say, well, gosh, Paul, I would do this differently, but I don't think you can get his point. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown now he's going to use that agricultural thing, like a seed planted in the ground. Okay, the body that is sown is perishable. That's the body we have now. It is raised imperishable. That's a huge statement, isn't it? What is he saying? Right now we have bodies, we know what happens to them. They get old and they break down and they get diseased and you begin to, I'm told that when I was 40 I started losing 10,000 brain cells a day 
I don't think I could have many left at this point, okay? Uh, there's just this deterioration until we eventually what? Disappear. Die. And then we turn into dust. And, uh, well, we will be raised imperishable. Imperishable. A body that will not deteriorate. That won't be touched by aging. That won't be touched by death. That won't be touched by cancer. I mean, that's the, prom that's the nature of the promise. It is such a spectacular promise that it's easy to dismiss it. I mean, I get why people don't really, don't become Christians. Fact, there are a lot of reasons, but I get why people would look at this and they would scoff. And they would say, well, Scott, how can you possibly believe such a thing? I'm an MD doctor and a PhD in medical something, something or other. Scott, how could you possibly believe such a thing? And I would look at them and I'd say, well, I don't know. How big is your imagination? Right? And then maybe I'd take them on a journey down to quantum physics where the tiniest particles that the universe appears to be made up become entangled to where if you split the particle in half, one goes one way, one goes the other way, you tickle that one and that one laughs. How could that be? It's called quantum entanglement. How could that be? It's crazy. How big is your imagination? And the evidence for the truth of the claim of an imperishable body when we are resurrected is Jesus' resurrection. That's why it's the linchpin. If Jesus were not resurrected, none of us would be here. None of us would be reading this. We would pay no attention to this letter. We wouldn't even, nobody would have copied this letter from place to place to place to place. So that it would even be accessible to somebody. But here's what God has revealed to Paul. And what is also, which we'll get to in a little bit, what has also been experienced in Jesus. Right? Because what did Paul write earlier in verse 20 or 21? Jesus is the first fruits of the harvest. The rest of us will follow. So the nature of Jesus' body will be the nature of our body. Jesus is the first. Someday the rest of us will follow. So verse 42. So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. Let me make one other point. This word resurrection, resurrection of the dead, anastasis necron, the, the word resurrection in the Greek has meaning. It doesn't mean a ghost. It was something the Greeks could imagine, but they knew didn't happen because the dead stayed dead. It would be like... You know, for the Greeks, the, their Bible, basically, their founding stories were um, Homer's, Iliad and the Odyssey. And so it, it would be like walking down a beach and encountering Achilles. Not his ghost or his shade, as Homer called it, but Achilles in the flesh. Brad Pitt in the flesh. Have you seen the movie? Right? Achilles in the flesh. That's what the word meant. Okay? It's a very specific word, anastasis, in the Greek. It didn't mean just anything we want it to mean. It had a meaning to it. The Greeks knew what it meant. And those the resurrection of the dead is about the bodily resurrection of the dead. To call it bodily resurrection is redundant. 
The word bodily is carried in the word resurrection. Okay? And that's, that's not a New Testament thing. That's just a Greek language thing. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, by which he means we, our bodies just turn old and diseased and cruddy and... I mean, it's the truth. You know, we can try to deny... There's entire industries in America devoted to helping people deny that. Right? But it's just the truth. We all know it's the truth. We see it in ourselves or we saw it in our parents and, you know, it might frighten us, but, you know, it's the truth. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. Glory is that social word. Glory is a word that says our resurrected bodies will be a testament, a, a witness to God's power to overcome sin and death and disease and mourning and grief and those promises that we read all over Scripture from Isaiah to Revelation, all over. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. And we come to the tricky one. We're going to spend some time here. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Well, the translators have had a heck of a time knowing what to do with that little Greek verse there. Um, and this is what? Here we have a natural body and spiritual body. Not great. The NRSV is worse. The NRSV says physical body and spiritual body. And if nobody helps you with this, it's natural to think that Paul is talking about a body you can touch and then a body that is ah, spirit and vapor. It's, it's a ghost. It's Casper. But that is not what the Greek is all about. So we're going to have, just like I had a Hebrew lesson, I should have said Boker Tov when we got started in here. Good morning. It's past morning now, and good afternoon is not something I mastered. There were too many complicated choices about good afternoon. So, here we go. This is the Greek. Um, here's how verse, and if you can't see this, you might even get up and move to where you can. Verse 44. It is sown a soma sukekon, or psychicon. It is raised a soma pneumaticon. Now, you might look at that word sukikon, and it might look a little bit familiar to you, right? Because we talk about our psyches, right? That word has made its way into English with a different meaning than for the Greeks, but connected in some way. Pneuma is simply the word for um, breath, for breath, like like a pneumatic tire. Okay, so even that word has made it into English. The Holy Spirit is um, the pneuma hegios. Is that right? Yeah. Pneumatology is the study of the Holy Spirit. Pneumatic tires are not, but you see how the words are related. Okay. So in the, now, let me take the words apart. Soma, that word's easy. That was simply the Greek word for body. 
like the underwear store at the mall, right? <laughs> I've used that joke before. It works every time. So, so, and if it doesn't, I'll, the first time I'll force it the second. So Soma. Um, now here's the tricky part because Paul uses this word many times. It's, it, it, it's, more than the, it, it's more than the physical body. When he says your body, your soma is a temple, it's really all of you. It's, it's more all-encompassing than the way we try to chop things up and split them up. But, but it's basically the word body. Soma, sukikan is how roughly it's pronounced. And suke, or psyche, suke is the soul in Greek. The soul. Now what is the soul for the Greeks? The soul for the Greeks is the animating power in life. It isn't really quite exactly how we use that word ourselves. It is the animating power in life. It is what makes us not trees. Even not dogs when you're speaking of humans. So it is a way that you could translate this would be a soulish body. Because right now, today, everyone sitting here, if we were all ancient Greeks, we would speak of ourselves as having a soma psychikon, a soulish body, a body animated by soul. That's the way the world works. That's the way the world had always been. That's how humans are, animated by the suke. Soulish. Soma pneumaticon, that word is spiritish. And as Lauren pointed out, the study of the Holy Spirit in Christian theology is called pneumatology. Okay? So, so it's a soulish body, sown a soulish body, raised a spiritish body. That's, that's kind of, it's kind of helpful. Here's another way. Sown an embodied soul, raised embodied spirit. Because you see in this, let me go to a different slide for a second. In this slide, this age to come at the top, the resurrection happening when Jesus returns. That is another way to speak of the top line is the age of the spirit. I could have brought charts that use that particular phrase to describe that line. It's the age of the spirit. The age of death and mourning and that's all that's all gonna the the the, the soulish is is gone. So what Paul is saying, and I'm gonna have something else to share with you in a second here, is that we in this life, right now, we are sown the way humans always have been. We are animated the way humans always have been by this Greek psychikon. But when we are resurrected, we will not be animated in that way as we are today. We will be animated by what? By whom? The Spirit. The spirit. Richard Hayes wrote this about this little verse here, he says. 
speaking of verse 44, by far, and he's right, the most graceful translation of verse 44 and the one that best conveys the meaning of Paul's sentence is found in the Jerusalem Bible. Now, I don't know if any, any of you ever used the Jerusalem Bible. It was originally a translation into French. And there's both the original Jerusalem Bible and the new Jerusalem Bible. And it's very, how would I say it? It's, it's literary. They don't feel compelled to follow the King James in some form or fashion, as many modern translations do in English. Okay? And so this is, what, this is how the translators of the Jerusalem body, Bible, put that verse. When it is sown, it embodies the soul. When it is raised, it embodies the spirit. If the soul has its own embodiment, so does the spirit have its own embodiment. That is Paul's point, Hayes writes. Our mortal bodies embody the suke, the soul, the animating force of our present existence. That's the Greek understanding of what the word is talking about. But the resurrection body will embody the divinely given pneuma, spirit. It is to be a spiritual body right, the embodiment of the spirit, not in the sense that it's somehow made out of spirit and vapors, but in the sense that it, this resurrected body that we will all enjoy, is determined by the spirit and gives the spirit form and local habitation. That's the contrast he's drawing. That things are not going to be the same. These bodies, there is continuity People did know what, who Jesus was after he was resurrected, but it's also discontinuous, trading in perishability for imperishability, trading in the way all humans have been animated um, since the beginning for bodies that are animated and, and given a living force. I, what we call it today may be our, our life force by the Holy Spirit. That's the kind of difference he's trying to draw. So, and if he weren't trying to draw that, so let's just say he said, Scott, that's just ridiculous. I can read it here in my own Bible. A spiritual body, I know what that means. That's like Casper. So go to, <laughs> go to Luke 24, because if Paul didn't mean what I just said, he has a big problem. This is another, this is a good touchstone for this. Twenty-four verse one. Luke twenty-four verse one. While you're there, find your way forward to verse 36. Okay. Mm -hmm. 
While they, these are the disciples, gathered on Sunday evening in verse 36 of Luke 24. Jesus himself stood among them, and he said to them, Peace be with you. And they were startled. And they were frightened, thinking they saw what? A ghost. Of course, people in this world knew what ghosts were. I mean, that's, I'm not saying there are ghosts, but a lot of them believe there are ghosts. Um, there's a story in Acts 12 where there's a knock at the door. They think Peter's been executed. There's a knock at the door. Um, Rhoda answers it. She opens the door. She sees Peter. I envision what happens is she slams the door in his face, runs back, and it tells people it's Peter, and they think it's his ghost because they think he's dead. Okay, so ghosts are not... They knew what a ghost was. A ghost was not a resurrected person. Okay, so... They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your mind? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. His body is substantial. It is material. It is not spirit and vapors and whatever else you think might constitute a ghost. When he, when Jesus had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, I would have also added probably words like confusion and, I mean, come on, dude, the dead stay dead. He asked them, do you have anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish. And he took it and he ate it in their presence. And he said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. So why does he ask for a piece of fish? Something to eat. Because ghosts don't eat. Ghosts don't eat. He has a body. He has teeth to munch on fish. He has a mouth to chew it and a throat to swallow it. So if Paul were saying anything other than what I just explained to you about verse 44, or really Richard Hayes and everybody else that you would want to read about this, what do you do with Luke 24 in that case? I think Luke 24 is very plain. I, I get what Jesus is doing. I get why when he comes back resurrected, they're amazed, they're startled, they're frightened. He knows they're amazed and startled and frightened. And so he sets about to help them understand what is happening, that he's not a ghost, that he has been resurrected. And if they really understood the law, the writings, the prophets as they should, they would get it. They would understand what's happening. It's what he had told them about while he was still walking with them before his, his crucifixion. Scott? Yes. You do have a question. Good. I'm going to pause for questions. And the question is from Len Lawton. Uh huh. This, I think, is going back just a little bit when we were talking about that we would be raised a spiritual body. She'd like to know is this different from the Holy Spirit, which works within each of us here on earth? For me, in my reading of it, no. We're talking about the Spirit. The difference is, right now, the Spirit dwells in us, but we are still living 
between the times. Our bodies still deteriorate. We are still animated by, in the Greek, Greek idea, by, by, um, by this suke, this we are soulish in the Greek idea. But when Jesus returns and we are resurrected, all that is gone. And we are left animated by God's spirit and um, we are, as Richard Hayes puts it, the habitation. Now in his commentary, Hayes uses lowercase s's here. And so I would like to ask him, you know, well, what are you talking about here? But the, the important thing is to see the difference between how we are now and how we will be when we're resurrected. And, yes? Okay, this is not when, this is me. So okay. If we, if we are in Christ. Yes. And we have the Holy Spirit within us. Yes. What will be the, the big difference then? If we are already animated somewhat by the Holy Spirit, now. To say that the Holy Spirit dwells in you doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit is your, uh, you got to put yourself back in this time, uh, that, that the Holy Spirit is, is what animates you, what gives you life, right? What, that is still soulish in the sense that we still, even though the Holy Spirit dwells in us, we will still deteriorate and disease and die, right? So if you have, if you, if you don't see that, let, let's just say, well, I don't see the difference between now and then, you have what's called an overrealized eschatology. You're bringing the future too much into the present. Because the truth is, our bodies are perishable. They perish easily. They perish easily, right? And Paul is trying to draw the distinction between a world in which we have these soulish bodies that perish easily and a world in which we are, we are given life solely by the Spirit of God. Maybe something like that. You know? We have, just, just, there's, yeah. The, the key that the key mistake people make is, is and which I think it's because Christians haven't been taught very well about this and is thinking that by resurrection is just kind of a spiritual thing. It's just kind of like a ghost, you know, but no, it's a physical body, which then by extension is why how what happens in Revelation 21? What arrives in Revelation 21 based on Isaiah 66, maybe 65. I, the new heavens and the new earth arrive. Well, why do we need a new earth? Because bodies need gravity. Bodies need places to walk and right? Why why the, the, the metaphors for the kingdom of God in the Old Testament are everybody's gonna sit under a fig tree and they're gonna speak peace and they're gonna bang their swords into plowshares and their spears and their pruning hooks and you know what everybody's going to get to keep the crops that they grow and babies aren't going to die and everybody's going to live to be anciently old okay which is a way 
of making it all very real life. With the, the Hebrews 23,000 years ago didn't grasp the fullness of this. That's why you have to look at the fullness of Scripture to get the full picture. Our bodies will be imperishable. They won't simply live to be 100. But for Hebrews of, from 3,000 years ago, they couldn't imagine anything more wonderful than everybody living to be 100 years old because half of babies died by the time they were five. Mothers had to get used to losing babies. Yes? There's more to come. Yeah. A lot more to come. Yeah. And for right now, the belief like believers were given life of the indwelling of the spirit, but someday, like it says earlier, we will be life fulfilled in Christ in a way that we can't even experience yet. See, th this is what drives people crazy. Drives people crazy that the Bible doesn't even want to talk to you about what happens to you when you die. Not really. There is a there just isn't much there. What the Bible wants to talk about is this. The resurrection. The new heavens, the new earth, the day of judgment. That's, it, it, it's like the Bible It's constantly forcing us out of ourselves a little bit and, and looking at, at, at what, is, what is coming. Even if it isn't in the moment of our passing. So thanks, Lauren. Is that helpful, Patty? Yes, Rita. Is part of the exchange for the soul, for the full spirit, the part where we no longer sin and doubt and worry and all that? Yes. I mean, Read the pro like okay, let, let's look go to, let's just let's go to Revelation twenty one to answer Rita's question. Rita wants to know if part is this all wrapped up with the shedding of mourning and grief and all that stuff and so let's look at Revelation 21 which is not original this comes from the scroll of Isaiah and elsewhere Revelation 21 verse 1 then I saw this is John then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. S-E-A, that is a synonym for chaos, which is God is not chaos, God is order. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, coming here. Not about us going there, the holy city coming here prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. 
another little piece of this metaphor about bridegrooms and brides early in Revelation, in Revelation 19, you have the marriage supper of the Lamb and His bride, Jesus and the church. It's all the same thing, expressed in different ways. Verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and He will dwell with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things had passed away. And if we went one chapter back, you know what we see, what John sees? Don't ask me what visually he saw, I don't know. But death is thrown into the lake of fire because death has been overcome. And what are the wages of sin? Romans 6, what are the wages of sin? Famous verse, death. Death is the wages of sin. So it is the overcoming, it is God's victory over sin and death that finally comes to full manifestation and realization and everything else is pushed away, everything else is gone. And what we are left with is a, is a new earth with Christ, with one another, with imperishable bodies, and I get to hug my, I make it very concrete for me, I get to hug my mom again, I get to hug, sit down with my granddad. Maybe people will play baseball, I don't know, my granddad would love that if people wanted to play baseball. I don't know, you know, so people ask me, well, what's it like, what's it like, what's it like? I don't know, My, but I have advice for you, really good advice, whether you're talking about what happens to you at the moment of your death or what happens to you at the time of the resurrection, pack it with, much, with as much goodness as you can and be prepared for the truth that God knows much more about goodness than we do. Pack it with as much goodness as you can and I don't think you're going to be very far off. It will be, it will be exciting to see and to discover. You got to pay, yes, yes, Sharon, you got to pay attention to direction. You right? Really, really, and many Christians don't. They, they, they think everything is about going up there, but no, it's here. N.T. Wright has a great title, subtitle of a book, Heaven is Not Our Home, by which he meant it is this place. The Holy City comes here. Christ comes here. It, it, this escaping this world to go to someplace better is it's a, it's a popular notion. We could talk about where it came from and how all of this got kind of lost for a long time. But even in the book of Daniel, um, the ancient, um, uh, the figure, the Son of Man, <clears throat> you have to pay attention to the direction that things happen. And this is a classic one. The, I won't confuse it with Daniel, but this is a classic one. The holy city comes down. Here, 1 Thessalonians 4, 
Jesus comes here. It's not so that a few people can, can scoot off somewhere else by the rest, while the rest of the world is, quote, left behind. That's not the key. If you, come, if you listen to my First Thessalonians class on Monday afternoon at 3 o'clock, when we get to First Thessalonians 4, I will show you what, that, what the words meant in the ancient world. And when you get that, okay. All Paul's talking about in 1 Thessalonians 4 is Jesus coming and the dead being raised and the question they have on their mind is, well, what about grandma who died before Jesus? Is she screwed? She, uh, yeah, really, is she out of luck? Excuse me for being needlessly crude, but sometimes plain talk is what we need because that's the question. Is grandma just out of luck? No, of course grandma's not out of luck. Nobody has to be out of luck. What's God's purpose in all of this? It is, to, it is to reconcile the humankind whom he loves to himself. God's not the great excluder. God is the great includer. So you have to have an expansive view of God's grace and understand what's happening. When I was a kid, I grew up embedded in this stuff. And you know, honestly... Heaven was not a very attractive place to me. And let me tell you why. Because what I envisioned happening was, you know, I would go up, up there and kind of sit in the clouds or whatever, and we would sing songs and have little harps, and that's what we would do all day, every day. <laughs> I was thinking, that sounds, that sounds pretty boring, you know. So when I began, you know, to study the New Testament seriously and began to realize, wait, that's not the picture. That's not at all the picture. As you point out, Sharon, the Holy City comes here. It's all about the direction. Yeah. Yay, that's what we do. Oh. Okay, well, let's talk about, but for a minute, what happens, what does the Bible say about what happens when we die? And understand this, I am all into you embracing, because I just said, the Bible doesn't say much. That means you can pack it with as much goodness as you want. Okay? When we die, the Bible says very few things. One of them, probably the most important, is from Philippians chapter 1, where Paul is talking about the fact that the executioner might be coming for him. And he says, I am ready to, quote, be with Christ. Now, for me, that's enough. If you say, well, Scott, when you pass, you're going to be with Christ, that's enough for me. Um, that's about all that there is. Jesus says to the thief on the cross, next to him, today you will be with me in paradise. That's a Persian word, paradise, paradisos, that speaks of a garden. Great. Great. Fine. Pack it with as much goodness as you can. But understand, that it's all still waiting. What is it waiting for? It's waiting for the second coming of Jesus, to which the 
Jesus comes back to time and again. The Paul comes back to time and again in long passages, short passages. Jesus' return, the day of the Lord, when finally the kingdom of God is made fully manifest and the dead are resurrected. I can hug my mom and you could hug your, you say your husband had passed? You could, you could hug your husband again, right? Now we have to be ready for some things, right? It's, it's not just this life transferred into a new world. Um, Jesus is challenged by the Sadducees on, well, who will I be married to if I've been married multiple times in heaven? And Jesus swats it aside. Okay, so the way I view it is we are all going to have hearts so gigantic that some of those kind of things are going to be different than they are here, but always good. And why do I say always good? Because God is, God is what good, God is what good is. Okay, and I'm great. And out there, when Jesus returns, I will like I just said, be able to hug my granddad, sit down, I don't know. Maybe we'll be stuck watching videotapes of old baseball. I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. It's just gonna be good. What happens in, this, in, in the growth of Christianity, there are these things that are brought in. You know, all of a sudden people who die become angels. Well, that's not in scripture anywhere. We don't, we're, we're human beings, we're not angels. Um, and there's a tiny bit in the Bible about maybe like a guardian angel and that gets turned into this giant thing in Catholicism and stuff and so I think part of what we have to do is, is try to winnow some of that away and I think what I'm left with when I winnow some of that away is Paul's promise for to, about himself and I think it's for us all that we will be with Christ while we await. In fact, here's another interesting thing. The Bible says so little about when we, what happens to us when we die, that there's, I don't know, maybe 15% of Christians, including the founding pastor of Park City's Baptist, right, who believed in what is called soul sleep. He said, he, he believes in the doctrine, or believed, I think he's passed now, believed in the doctrine that when you die, it, it's like falling asleep at night. And when, and, and when you wake up, it's here. So it's essentially an instantaneous wake up. And you're, you know, I don't know. I don't believe that because I think there's substance around Paul's meaning, will he be Christ? But I can't really, it's not heretical because the Bible just doesn't say much about it. And what we have to do is trust Jesus enough to pack it all with intense and massive amounts of goodness. And I think the Catholics, I may be wrong here, but I think they believe there's a bit of a chance of redemption in this. On the other side of the grave? Yeah. Hey, so does Brother Scott. You do. I do, because I think God's grace is expansive. Somebody just sent me a, a, a study of this written by a Protestant. Yeah, Be what, ha what happened to this whole topic is people got to the idea that when you die, there's an up escalator and a down escalator. <laughs> you go to heaven or you go to hell. End of story. 
we lost we we talk about Jesus coming back but we lost any sense of what that meant and I'm telling you when I started teaching here at at St. Andrew conservatively 80 percent maybe more of the people did not understand that when they said the Apostles Creed and they got to the end when it's, we say, and I, I believe in the resurrection of the body, that they were talking about their body. They thought they were talking about Jesus again. I remember being in the classes when I informed them that no, 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 the, that phrase, the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting, that is about you. That's your body, your life everlasting. We handled Jesus earlier in the creed. They're going like, oh. and so then they're trying to fit all this together and what you have to do the key piece is to take away those escalators, right? You take away the escalators. Death, there we have a life, we have a life after death, I'll be with Christ, and then as N.T. Wright puts it, a life after, life after death. And take away the escalators. In scripture, the judgment, where does the judgment happen? How, what's the order of things? Because the order of things matters. In, in the book of Revelation, which is, which is kind of helpful in some of this, the judgment is the last thing that happens before the new heavens and the new earth. Jesus has already come back. The dead have already been raised. After that, the names are read from the book of merit and the book of life. We just got into this thing pulling it all up to the time of our death, up, down, end of story, don't need to know anything else. And so we read vast portions of scripture, it goes in one ear and out the other, because we don't, we, we're not set up to process it. So we read it now, and we realize, like Sharon has, wait, the Holy City's coming here. What does that mean? Well, it means a lot. The Holy City's coming here. <gasps> and you start putting the pieces together and they start falling in and it becomes like, wow. No. <laughs> that, thank, thank you, God. That's the glories of Scripture, right? That, that's why um, sort of my job on staff sometimes is to force us to try to to be true to scripture, to not, even on things that we go like, like what? You know, say this how it is, we gotta deal with it, we gotta deal with it. Let me give you another example. This one always shakes people up. The phrase, the children of God. The children of God, when you come across that, just keep it to the New Testament. When you come across that, the children of God, who are the children of God? Humanity? No, no, no. It's only believers. That's how it's used. So everybody is made in the image of God, but in the New Testament, if you come to it and you take the phrase, the children of God, as meaning all of humanity, you will misread, you will misread the passages. You'll misread the passages. And we want to read them well. And it takes some it, it takes as much unlearning as learning because I don't know about you, but my head has been filled up with all kinds of things over the course of my life. I was a little Episcopalian boy growing up. 
At 13, I thought I might be an Episcopalian priest. You know? How much did we learn about the Bible in the Episcopal Church? Squat. <laughs> Zero. How much did you learn about the Bible in the Roman Catholic Church? You grew up in You went to Roman Catholic school for eight years. How about you learn? Very little. Very little. How long you'd have to stay in purgatory, which is another Roman Catholic idea that's not in Scripture. You're not going to find purgatory here. You can find, you know, I mean, it's not a bad idea. The idea is, well, in the simplest, I read an article once, Purgatory for Protestants. It was, it was, it's not a terrible idea to think about. Well, like maybe on the other side of the grave, we're going to continue to progress toward perfection or whatever you know, while, while we await the second coming of Christ. I don't know. But purgatory, the way it's been given us by the Catholic Church, is another non-biblical idea. Mary's perpetual virginity is an assumption made. P Mary's immaculate consumption, con conception is the theological outworking of her being the mother of Jesus, but it's not found in Scripture. So, I'm a Protestant. I'm a Protestant. You guys have just come back from Israel, and I forget the name of it. It's been three years since I was here in that area where everybody is supposed to come back. Well, for the Jews, for, for some Jews, when the, when the Messiah comes, it's going to be on the Mount of Olives. And there's a big cemetery there because they all want to be close to the action. They're going to be like the first race. The key thing is, first, the first raise means what? The Jews, under, the Orthodox Jews believe in the resurrection of the dead, bodily. Because these are all Jews we're talking, Paul's Jewish, Jesus is Jewish, he's, yes, he's writing to a mix of Jew and Gentile in Corinth, but still, yeah, exactly. So, um, we were there, and you could, you, you could see all, and, and here's another way, I, I tend to think about it. What they see as the Messiah's first coming, we'll see as his return, right? Because Jesus is the Messiah. How do we know he's the Messiah? What proof do we have? The resurrection. You can always drop that in anytime somebody asks you something like that. <laughs> so, so my friends, we're any other questions right now? I have a minute or two. We're going to stop right here. When we come back next, next week, we're going to pick up right there and move into the next section, which gets back to the Adam-Jesus, what would I call it? Adam-Jesus deal, topology, again, what? Yes. Lauren's talking about this wonderful professor at Perkins who died prematurely and one of the theology teachers down there at Perkins used the phrase, may he rest in peace and rise in glory, which comes from this passage. But it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful, wonderful way to think about how we Christians view death. Death is the enemy, understand, because it separates us from people that we love. So don't under, death is the enemy. That's why God um, has won a victory, has won his victory over sin and death. But um, 
It isn't, it isn't the end of the story for any of us. Believer or non-believer, all will be resurrected. That's the doctrine that comes out of Scripture is that all will be resurrected. So, yes? Denise is asking, okay, for us Christians who understand that death is not our end, that one day we will be resurrected, what about when, when it comes to what should help us deal with death, right? What about those who hold no such hope? Because hope is really a confidence. It's, Christian hope is confidence in the truth of this. But what about those who don't have any of that? Where are they left? Well, if they're honest, they just, it's like for the Buddhists, it's like the candle goes, goes out. That's why, whatever his name was, I need to look this up. I want to say Thomas Wolfe, that's not right. When he wrote, do not go gently into that good night, was a protest against death. Because for him it was Dylan Thomas. I got one of the words right. Dylan Thomas, thank you very much. Dylan Thomas, do not go gently into that good night because, why? Because if you don't have this hope, then you think that death is your end. And you're going to be terribly surprised, I grant you, yes. Uh huh. They get a second chance because, and I sort of made a light joke. If somebody says to me after I die and starts talking to me, I'm certainly going to believe. That's why Dylan Thomas got a big surprise after he died. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's not. It, it, there's hope for those that don't believe because they were yes. offered the choice. But that hope doesn't help them on this side of their death, of navigating death. That's what Denise was talking about. Yes, yes, absolutely. Okay, glad you asked that, Don. So I always, always want a chance to be able to clarify anything I say that, because I say a lot of words, and y'all are very good about giving me grace when I say things unclearly or mistakenly. So would you pray with me? You have anything else, Patty? Nope. Okay, let's pray. Gracious Lord, you are the ground of our hope. Help our hearts and our minds to embrace fully the resurrection of Jesus and all that flows from it, including our own resurrection, including the remaking of this world and a world without sin and death and disorder and mourning and grief and crying and tears and cancer and the rest. A world put right a world put right. Help us to see the truth of that, to embrace it, to internalize it, and to live our lives in the sure confidence of what lies ahead. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.